0: following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We're going to be reading verses 7 to 32 again this Sunday, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. She could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he bowed to her whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter." And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Let's pray. Jesus, as we just reflect on the words of that last song that we sang before we read the scriptures here, we are reminded that we are gathered here today only because of you. God, you are so holy, so righteous, so just, there is no possible way that you could ever accept us, a group of rebellious sinners against everything that you are. And yet, by sending your Son to die for us, you have opened a way for us to come and be made like you. And so it is only through Jesus that we gather this morning. It is only in Jesus' name that we find any hope. It is what we are reading about here in the, these texts of Mark as, as he unfolds for us in your life, Lord, and in your ministry and ultimately your sacrifice that we find the hope that every single one of us has to cling to because we have nothing in and of ourselves in which to cling. And so, Lord, this morning as we work through this passage again, I pray that Our focus will be only on you and recognizing what it means to follow you, what it means to be a disciple of yours, what it means to to believe in you as the Son of God and as the King and now as the Christ, the Savior who will save us from our sins, take our place, become the curse that we rightly deserved. Help us to look at these things to count the cost and to respond accordingly. We give you our time together this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to tell a story that I had told uh, six years ago, July 27, 2008, to be specific, Um, but none of you remember it, so it's good. It has to do when Jamie and I were first married, um, living in our apartment. We were po, like, you know, (laughs) really poe, right? We couldn't even afford to rent a movie. We were so poe. So, we had to, if we were going to have a movie night or something, we had to go to uh, Chesapeake Library and check out a a movie there, which at the time was all VHS. There were no DVD for those children in the room. VHS is like ancient DVDs, kind of. It's like tape and it spun around. It's kind of weird. But anyway, it was all they had. And so uh, they didn't have a big selection either at the time. And so we had gone for, I don't know how long we had done this, had gotten several movies over... Time and we kind of exhausted all the new stuff that they had, which is not very much. And so, all that was left then was older movies, which actually was pretty fun to start to watch some things that we had never seen before. And one of the movies we decided to watch that we had never seen it's like one of those iconic movies that everybody talks about, but a lot of people surprisingly haven't watched it is Fiddler on the Roof. We, we wanted to see Fiddler on the Roof, and so we check it out. We come home, and I don't know, it's Friday night, right? It's, it's movie night. We're gonna put the movie in, we sit on the couch, and it starts up, you know, fiddler on the roof, and the music goes, and then the story begins, and within like the first two minutes, we're totally lost. I mean, totally lost. We, we're They're talking about stuff, and they're doing things, and we don't know why they're doing it, and we're thinking, well, maybe they'll come back in later on in the movie and explain what they're talking about up front, because sometimes movies do that, right? They'll start in the middle of something, and then they have to give you some backstory later, and... So we're watching, but that never happens, and they're singing songs and all whatever, and we get to the end of the movie, and it goes to credits, and we turn it off, and we're like, that was not what we expected at all. And we're sitting there scratching our heads, wondering about this. What what kind of movie is this? And I go, and I pull it out of the VCR, which is like an old DVD player. I pull it out of the VCR, and I look, and for the first time, I noticed that we had gotten Fiddle on the Roof Part 2. It was a two-part VHS (laughs) set. I don't know how we missed that. <laughs> I also don't know how we went through the entire second part without at once going, do we, like, I don't know, it just, we were so poe, we couldn't even afford a thought, I guess, at that point. Uh, if you weren't here last week, you're going to have a little bit of a similar feeling this morning uh, as we work through the text today, because today is part two of a two-part sermon. And I really do mean two-part sermon, because, yeah. know, um, sometimes when I'm preaching, well, hopefully always when I'm preaching, I will try to build uh, my current sermon on the the foundation of what we've looked at in weeks prior. And so in that sense, you know, there always is a connection, but not normally like this. This is really one sermon that was just too large to preach in one week, and so I had to break it into two parts. And that's because the section that we just read together is very long, uh, well, re- relatively long, and it's made up of of two seemingly separate stories that are actually intended to be read together and put together as one. And so because of its size, because of some of the complexities here, I couldn't do it all in one week, and that's why I broke it into two. And thankfully, it was really easy to break, since this is another example of that literary or rhetorical device that we've seen now several times in Mark, known as intercalation. Yes, you know it now. Intercalation, for the three people in the room probably who don't know what that means because I say it so much, is when you take a story, your main story, if you're an author or storyteller, and you pull it apart, and in the middle you insert a second story. And the reason you do that is so that that second story can help make sense of the main story. Okay, you got that? Is that very clear to everybody by this point? And in this particular case here, story A, or the main story that we have before us, is the story of Jesus sending out the 12 disciples for the very first time on a mission to reach the towns around him. If you look at verse 7, you'll see that he sends them out, and he Gives them instructions, and they're gonna go out, they're gonna preach, they're gonna cast out demons, they're gonna heal the sick, and then that goes all the way to verse 13. And then you get to verse 14, and there's this abrupt change that takes place. Now in verse 14, we're talking about Herod and the death of John the Baptist and all the stuff that went around there. But then if you go down to verse 30, notice who's back now. It's the disciples. They're coming back and they're telling Jesus everything that they did and taught, and Jesus take him away to a quiet place to rest. And even though that may seem odd to us at first, I think I said this last week, but if I didn't, it's still true this week, that that is just, that's not a haphazard arrangement on his part. This has been purposefully done. These two stories go together in order to highlight something that Mark wants us to see as he begins this third and final section here in Mark's gospel, which, as I have told you now over the last couple of Sundays, is presenting Jesus as the Christ, okay? Presenting Jesus as the Christ, and this is the first scene of this final section presenting Jesus as such. And so what we did last week was we just went through that middle story first, okay? I wanted to get that out of the way first so that we could come back, and it was really pretty simple. And I want to just walk us back through it really quickly to refresh your minds from where we were last week. But if you look at at verse 14 there, you'll see that news of Jesus and his amazing works have finally reached the ears of, of Herod and the people and political leadership. And so he and his advisors, friends, whoever, they're sitting around trying to figure out who this guy Jesus is. And three options are put forth. One group thinks that Jesus is Elijah. And if that sounds weird, remember that's because the Old Testament prophesied that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would come first and prepare the way. And so they're looking at him going, well, maybe maybe that's who he is. Maybe he's the Elijah character that the Old Testament prophesied. Others think maybe he's not Elijah, but he's just one of the prophets, like the prophets of old. He's like, not, not that good. He's not Elijah good, but He's he's like one of the other prophets, but there are others in the room, including Herod himself, who think that maybe, just maybe, Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And and that might seem odd to you at first, but I I think that that what's going on in Herod's mind and perhaps the minds of these other people as well is they're looking at Jesus and they're listening and hearing about the amazing things he's doing, and they're thinking, Maybe God is vindicating the wrongful death of this righteous man by raising him from the dead and giving him power. And, and of course, Herod's wrong about this. I noted that last week. It's not John the Baptist raising him, that it's Jesus. And yet I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that Herod gets closer than almost anyone else in the Gospels in recognizing what God can do if he raises someone from the dead, vindicating some righteous person in power by raising him from the dead. But that's not neither here nor there. It's not John the Baptist. But in stating this idea, you at least learn something that you didn't know up to this point, and that's that John is dead. So the rest of the story unfolds explaining that when we last saw John back in chapter 114, he was in prison, but we didn't know why. Here we learn it's because of his preaching. He had the audacity to say to Herod, it is not lawful for you to marry your brother's wife because he had taken his brother Philip's wife Herodias to be his own. Not only is she his sister-in-law, but as I tried to show you in that really convoluted family tree, which probably confused everyone and I apologize, but You actually saw how confusing it really is, so I don't think that's my fault. Um, She's also his niece or his half-niece, and so he marries, it's incest, he marries his half-niece, who is also his sister-in-law, and his half-brother and his sister-in-law had a child, Salome, and so now she becomes his stepdaughter, his half-niece and his half-grandniece all at once, very confusing situation. John is calling them out on this. This is wrong on so many levels. And, and, And the person who he makes the maddest of all is not Herod, funny enough, it's Herodias. She has a grudge against him. She wants to put him to death, but she couldn't, Mark tells us, because Herod feared John. Herod recognized that John was a righteous and holy man. Herod puts him in prison, I think, to protect him from his wife. And even in prison, he likes to go and hear Herod preach, even though it tears him up inside. He's perplexed. He's torn. He's, he doesn't know which way he should go, but he still likes hearing it. He's, he is an, a double-minded man, to say the least. And everything seems to work fine. John is safe for a while until one day... When Herod throws a birthday party for himself. And so at this birthday party, Herodias decides to send her daughter in. Remember his grand niece, his or his half-grandniece, his half-niece, and his half-stepdaughter. No, full step I don't know. Whatever. He she comes in and she dances for Herod and these men, and Mark says very delicately, simply that it pleased them. And to show his gratitude and his enjoyment for her performance, he makes a vow to her in front of all of these important people that he'll give her whatever she wants, anything. She goes out, asks mom, mom, what should I ask for? And think about the family dynamics here. If your mother says to you, why don't you ask for the head of a prisoner that I hate? So she goes in and says, all right, dad or uncle or whatever she called him, I'd like the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And whatever Herod had in mind prior to that moment is instantly destroyed because now he is mortified by this request. He feared John. He, he, he enjoyed hearing John. He tried to keep John safe and now he finds himself at a crossroads between two decisions. Decision one is to do what's right, to say no to her request and risk looking weak in front of all of these important people. Decision two is is to do what's wrong, to go along with her plan in order to maintain his own reputation. And of course, it didn't take him very long to decide between those two options. Mark says that immediately he sent an executioner to bring John's head to the girl on a platter, a decision that I think Herod felt very guilty for, very guilty for later. I think that's why when he hears about Jesus, he's instantly like, oh, it's Herod, he's back. Like, i I think you feel that in his words there, and the story ends very simply by noting that the disciples of John came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Okay, everybody remember all of that? That was last Sunday. You're like, why does it take you so long to preach when you can do it in like three minutes or five or whatever that was? I don't know. Keep that in mind, and now look at verse seven. Picking up where we left off last week. This scene, in fact, this entire section really is beginning with something that we have not yet seen in Mark. We have seen Jesus interacting with his disciples now for several chapters. He's been teaching them. They've been with him. He's been, he's been showing them things, explaining things to them. But now Mark tells us that Jesus caused the 12 to himself and he begins to send them out two by two. So now it's not a matter just of, hey, come be with me, which is what we've seen up to this point. Now it's a matter of, okay, get ready to go. And if you're wondering why he did two by two, I think that's just a matter of practicality. The text doesn't say, and it doesn't really matter. But what I really want you to focus on is, is what exactly they're being sent out to do. Because as they're being sent out on this mission, there is both an unstated and a stated responsibility here in verse 7. The unstated responsibility is that they are to go out proclaiming the message of Jesus, okay? That's the unstated responsibility. They're there to go out and to say the same things that Jesus says. And if you need a refresher of, or a, a, a little encapsulated way of remembering the message of Jesus, I would simply point you back to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 where Jesus comes proclaiming that the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom is at hand, and what is your response then? You should repent and believe the gospel, okay? If you want to to summarize or encapsulate Jesus' ministry, his message, his preaching into two really simple verses, there they are. The disciples here now are supposed to go out and do the same thing, and as I said, this isn't stated explicitly here in verse 7, but it's clearly implied, And as you look down through verse 13, you'll see that this was clearly a part of their mission. For example, in verse 11, he talks about what they should do when they go to people who won't listen to them. Okay, That's implying that they have something to say, that they're not just there doing things on behalf of Jesus, though they'll do that as well, but they're saying things on behalf of Jesus. And sometimes people won't listen. Verse 12, he specifically tells us that they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And so even though it's not explicitly stated in verse 7, it's very clear in the text that part of their mission, part of what they are being sent out by Jesus to do is to represent Jesus and go out and proclaim the message of Jesus everywhere they go, okay? So that's what they're going to do. There's a second responsibility. This one is stated in verse 7, and it's that they'll also perform the works of Jesus as well. So not just proclaiming his message, but performing his works. And Mark tells us that Jesus sent them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he only mentions the ability to cast out demons here, but if you look down again to verse 13, you'll see that also included apparently the ability to heal. I don't think Mark makes a big distinction in those two ideas. Of If you've got the ability to do one, you've got the ability to do the other. Does it make any sense to have the ability to cleanse a leper but not cast out a demon or... Vice versa. If you have Jesus' authority on you, you're good to go, okay? And so this is what they're being sent out to do. That in their task, their mission is to represent Jesus by proclaiming the message of Jesus, repentance and belief, and doing the works of Jesus, deliverance and healing everywhere they go. That's really simple, right? Except that he's not done. Because not only then does he tell them what to do, He also gives them some instructions on how they are to do it that are quite frankly peculiar. First, he gives them instructions on their provisions in ministry. He tells them that they are to take nothing for their journey except for a a staff, a walking stick. That's it. Don't don't take uh, any bread. Don't, Don't grab your lunchbox or the cooler, you know, throw it in the back. In fact, don't even have it back, so don't take a bag with you to throw it in. Uh, don't, uh, don't take uh, any money in your belt. And this is how they would carry their money. They would take the, the piece of fabric or leather that they wrapped around their waist and they would fold the coins up in it, kind of like a wallet so it didn't drop out or get lost. Don't take any money in your belt. Nope, just take a staff. Uh, you can take sandals, but don't take a second tun- tunic or shirt. In other words, they're, they're being sent out with nothing but what they brought with them to the meeting. It's as, almost as if like, like, hey guys, come here, come here. And they're all like, yeah, what? Hey, okay, you two go that way. Now you two go that way. Go do this. And they've got no clue. They've got no preparation. They've got no planning. They're just being sent out on the spot with urgency and and haste. Well, if that's the case, how are they supposed to eat and, and sleep and live as they go out on this mission on on Jesus's behalf? Well, according to verse 10, they're supposed to be dependent on the kindness of others, and nothing else. He says here in verse 10 that Whenever you enter a house, you just stay there until you depart from there. And in reading that, you have to understand a little bit about first century Jewish culture. That There was this understanding, this expectation that if you see a traveler or a stranger in your town or near your fields or near your house, that you have an obligation to reach out and show hospitality to that person. You're, you're obligated to, to offer them food. You're obligated to offer them water. You're you're obligated to care for their animals. You're even obligated to offer them a place to stay for the night, to show them this kind of kindness and hospitality. And this would be true generally, but it would be particularly true for people who are doing God's work and on God's mission. Any rabbi, scribe, priest who was coming through town, Oh, believe me, everyone would be like, priest, rabbi, come, come, stay with me. I'll take care of you. Stay as long as you need to stay. I'll, I'll, we'll cook your meals. You just do God's work. This, this is how they would have thought. And it, and it's into this environment that Jesus is sending them out, with all their dependency here in this mission, this, the kindness and provision of others. They have nothing. They're going to be totally dependent on God providing people along the way to care for their needs. And so he gives them these instructions on their provisions for the mission. Second, he gives them instructions on how to respond to people that they encounter on their mission. For those that receive them and are willing to listen to them, he says, well, simply stay in their houses until you depart from there. Meaning once you get there and you're settled, you know, if some richer guy in town, like, hey, why don't you come stay over here? Like, well, okay, you know, got a nicer uh, house up there. No, you stay where God has provided until you're ready to leave. And when they're ready to leave, they can go. It's not the Hotel California, so they can take off when they want to. But, but don't go looking for something more or better as you're out ministering on my behalf, Jesus says. But for those who won't receive them or their message, he gives a very different response. He says that if any place will not receive you and if they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust, okay? This, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And again, you have to understand first century Jewish culture a little bit to understand the significance of this. To to shake off the dust of your feet is a symbol, a visible sign of your disdain slash disassociation with something and even more specifically with your belief that God's judgment is coming to it and you want nothing to do with it. So, for example, if I'm a Jewish guy and I'm traveling through, you know, for business and I have to go through a Gentile area on my way back home, the moment I crossed the border, it was pretty common practice for them to shake off the dust of their feet against those pagan Gentiles whose land they had to walk through. You know, I don't want anything to do with them. God's judgment is coming on them and I want to be disassociated completely from that. It's a way of showing that you want nothing to do with this and that that God's judgment even is at hand. That Jesus commands his disciples to do the same thing to people within the land of Israel, within this covenant land, the covenant people of Israel, is quite a statement against them. Quite a statement against them. If they will not accept God's message or his messenger's then they are no better than the pagans whom God will judge regardless of where they live. This is what they're saying by this act. This act is a, a visible sign to these people that their decision about Jesus' message as given through his messengers has huge ramifications for them. It's not just a, oh, we don't want to hear you. It's If you reject them, you're rejecting God himself. Kind of a big deal. So Mark ends this first part of this first story by noting that the disciples went out and did these things, right? They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They proclaimed Jesus' message on his behalf. Uh, They went out, they cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They performed the works of Jesus on his behalf, like you see here. In fact, if you jump down now to verse 30, you see that the whole mission of sending them out seems to have been a great success, they come back to Jesus after all of this, and they told him all that they had done and taught. You really get the idea in the text that they're excited about what's going on. Hey, Jesus, listen, listen, you sent us out, and we did this, and the demons were subject to us, and we were healing people with diseases, and it was amazing. We're calling people to repentance, and some people responded. Yeah, sure, not everyone did, but, but people responding, amazing things have happened. You, you, you really get the sense here that they're pretty pumped about what's going on. And so Mark ends by noting that after hearing all that had been done, Jesus just simply takes them away to a desolate place to rest for a while. There's still lots of people, he says, coming and going around them, and they have no leisure even to eat, and so they go away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, what's Mark doing here? putting these two stories together as he has. I mean, on the one hand, you have a story of what seems to be like a really exciting moment, right, in the life and ministry of Jesus. A big change, really, in how he's interacting with the disciples. Because up to this point, it's been, hey, come here, come here, let me teach you, let me teach you. Now he's shifting to, hey, go out, and you do the teaching, and you do the healing, and you do. It's an exciting moment in the the life ministry of Jesus where he's sending out these 12 to represent him throughout the region. And, And these 12 messengers, they go out, And they proclaim God's message of repentance and belief, and they're totally dependent on God to care for them, and he does, because none of them starve or freeze to death. They all come back to Jesus in the end. And everything seems really great. We all are really excited about that story. And then on the other hand, you have a very depressing, kind of scary story if you think about it. Of the life and ministry of John the Baptist, that doesn't end quite so happy. I mean, here, this one messenger who goes out proclaiming God's message of repentance and belief, same message, who is also totally dependent on God to care for him. I mean, he eats wild locust and honey. You, you don't get much more dependent on God than that. He ends up with his head being removed from his body because he's doing God's will. It's a very different ending of two actually kind of similar stories. And you see, what I think Mark is trying to do here is I think he is trying to show us some things about the reality of what it is going to mean for people who want to walk down this path with Jesus the Christ here at the beginning of this, first sec- this final section. He's, he's shown us Jesus the Son of God and we're all like, yay, he's the Son of God. We sh- he's shown us now Jesus is King and we're like, well, we, should, we should bow down and worship the King and he shows us Jesus as the Christ and we're like what's that going to mean? What's it going to cost if if he he's going to give his life for us and Mark's going to show us very clearly in the chapters ahead that that means we have to give our life for him. So what's that going to look like? Well, I think that's Mark's point here and I want to I want to help flesh out Mark's point by making Four observations of what it is going to mean to be a disciple of Jesus that I think will help you understand how he's weaving or why he's weaving these two, two stories together. Number one, to be a disciple of Jesus means viewing your ministry, in fact, your entire life, as nothing more than an extension of Christ's ministry and life. Understand here that what you see is really quite amazing in this first story. Here is Jesus, the Son of God. Here is Jesus, the King. He has all ability, all authority to go out and do anything and everything he wants in the establishment of his kingdom. And what does he choose to do? He sends out these 12 losers. Like, I mean, if it was me in Jesus' place, I don't know that I would have entrusted such a critical mission to these 12 guys. And yet... This is at the beginning of the story. He wants it built into the system at the beginning of the story that they are going to be involved in the spread of this kingdom. And so he begins to to send them out. Sure, he could do it alone, but, but he sends them not to innovate, mind you, but to replicate. They are to go out and they are to say the same things that Jesus is saying. They are to do the same things that Jesus is doing. And guess what? That's still true of disciples today. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? You want to be a follower? You want to call yourself a Christian? Well, then guess what? You need to stop viewing your life and your ministry, if you even have one, as being about you in any way, shape, or form. It's about Christ. This same Christ who at the beginning is sending out these disciples is eventually going to go out himself to the cross and he's going to die. He's going to trade his life for ours. And what he demands in return is not some token uh, 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 identification with him as if we all wave the pennant that says, Jesus, yeah, we cheer for Jesus. We love the Jesus team. He demands the life of anyone who comes after him. You're going to go out? You want to be a follower? You want to be a disciple? Guess what you're going to do? You're going to live, you see your life as an extension of Jesus' life, and we're not trying to peddle our own message. Someone I I just was talking to recently, I don't remember who it was who said it, said the only new uh, uh, theology that's come out in the last, oh, let's say 2,000 years is heresy. (laughs) There's no room for innovation. We have one message, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is King, that Jesus is the Christ, and you should repent and believe. You should repent and believe. We do his message, we do his works because our own ministry is an extension of his. That's what it's gonna mean to be a disciple. Number two, to be a disciple of Jesus means being so dedicated to the task of your mission that personal comforts become inconsequential. That you are so dedicated to the task of your mission that personal comforts become inconsequential inconsequential. I mean, just think about what he does here. And this is an unusual situation with the disciples because later when he sends them out, he's going to tell them, hey, look, take some extra food and extra money. This is not like prescriptive for all ministry everywhere that we should all just go out with nothing prepared and just hope God provides. I don't think that's the point. And yet I recognize that as he sends them out in this particular situation, as it's been put together here by Mark, they have no provision. None. None. Not only do they have no provision, but once they get whatever God is going to give them, they're told to stay there. Just stay there until you're done. Don't go looking to make it better. Just stay there. Uh, John the Baptist, he's got a meager life as you look back on what the the, the Gospels tell us about him. He's in jail the last time we see him. He ends up dying. Uh, Jesus says to people who would follow him listen, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I got nowhere to lay my head. I'm homeless. We serve a homeless Savior. Things sometimes go well, sometimes they don't. But our personal comforts cannot be the determining factor as we think about what it means to follow Jesus. I think of Paul's words when he says, look, I've learned how to have plenty, I've learned how to want. Sometimes God gives a lot, sometimes God gives very little. It doesn't really matter because the mission is primary. Do you you see the point? And I would remind us all, myself, first and foremost, that we cannot serve two masters. And as American Christians, we are, we are very tempted to serve two masters. Actually, I fear we're only tempted to serve one, and Jesus is not that guy. That we want to serve money and pleasure and happiness and comfort. We want to pursue those things and live the good life more than we want anything else. And so I would say to you again, something I said several weeks back, whose kingdom are you building? Whose kingdom are you building? Because if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it's going to require a, a single focus on the mission at hand with no thought to personal comforts. And that is very hard for us to hear. But this is what you see. Number three, to be a disciple of Jesus means both, capital B, capital O, capital T, capital H, both proclaiming the message of Jesus and doing the works of Jesus. Both. It's it's. I'm, I'm, I'm going to emphasize this point for a reason. It's not just a mission of proclamation. That's what I'm trying to emphasize here. Because that's where the American church has erred over the past I don't know how many years. we will just say 50. Just to pick a number. We, the, the American church has been very good at emphasizing proclamation. Go out, share the gospel, give the track, do this, do that. It's not been so good on doing the works of Jesus. It's not been so good at getting their hands dirty and Spending time with people who aren't so great and, you know, lepers and such, you know, we're not, we'll leave that for somebody else. Even in our neighborhoods, it's not, we're not so great at that. Like, what do you, part of that's because we live in a, 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 a country of affluence. I get that. And yet, I don't think that gives us an excuse. It, it's interesting to me that that as, as Jesus sends them out, he doesn't uh, indicate that the healing and the deliverance comes at a cost to the recipient. In other words, hey, listen, guys, cast out demons as long as they believe and repent. It's just like, as you go, just cast out the demons. Okay, hey, I, I met you. Uh, look, demon, get out. Okay, here's Jesus. You're going to repent? No? Okay, whatever. All right. <laughs> not, not quite that callous, but you get the point. Jesus, as he's going around in his ministry, doesn't do that either. He doesn't run up against people who are like sick and in in dire need and like, now listen, I'll heal you if you believe in me. Like there's never a cost attached to his kindness. His kindness is just given by grace freely to anyone and everyone. And oftentimes I fear that we as the church have gone the very opposite way. Like we'll help you as long as you're willing to do A, B, C, and D with us. I just don't know that that's right. Be a disciple of Jesus, I think, is going to mean both proclaiming the message. I'm not downplaying that. Okay, I'm saying I think that the American church, they get that part. They don't get the rest of it, though, that it's also going to mean doing the works of Jesus along the way. And to the extent that we can do good works to those around us, that we can be the be the be the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us, I think we should. Number four, To be a disciple of Jesus means recognizing the cost of discipleship discipleship then start to finish. You know, John the Baptist, he ended up with jail and death. Jesus, death. Disciples, most of them, death, okay? Jesus says in a little bit here, I think chapter 8, he's going to say to people who want to be his disciples, listen, you want to follow me? That's great. Pick up your cross and come on. And see, that's so counter to how we think, because if someone came up to you and be like, at work, and was like, I want to follow Jesus, you'd be like, get on board, let's just go, right? You wouldn't say to them, are you ready to die? That's not a great like evangelistic method. Who wants to die? If you'd like to die, raise your hand. Everyone sign up over here. Maybe the church needs more of that, though. I mean, I've been thinking for a while now just uh, about culture, country, stuff like that. And uh, I hear so many people decry like, oh, America's going to hell in a handbasket kind of thing. And uh, I'm like, I think it might be good for us. I think it might be real good for us to, to come to a place where uh, maybe things aren't quite so easy anymore. Maybe it'll clarify some things along the way of who's really in and who's really out. Because as long as it's easy and simple, I don't know that it, <laughs> it matters to a lot of people. Sometimes the cost of discipleship is going to mean living for Jesus. Sometimes it's going to mean dying for him. And we look at the people who die for him and we think, man, they got the raw end of the deal, but I'm telling you they didn't. See, this is just the reality of what it means to follow Jesus. And and I think Marcus put it up here at the beginning so that as we go into this section, we're not going into it all rosy-eyed thinking, oh, Jesus, you know, we like... I don't know what we've done to him in our minds, but we've, we've turned him into something that I don't know that he fully is, and he wants to make it very clear. You want to follow Jesus? Great. Whether it's good, bad, this, that, plenty, want, it's going to come with a cost. It's going to mean certain things. This is this is who you're you're signing up to follow he, Jesus himself as as we're going through this first part in here I'll remember we're on our way to the end this is the beginning of the end of mark where he's on his way to to death to the cross and he's he's just letting us know what's going to what's going to come but but could I encourage you because that's kind of dark like not dark but it's just heavy and I, I, I don't mind leaving you on a heavy note but there was one last thing I saw here that encouraged me and I wanted to encourage you with as well one of the authors, the commentators I was reading this week used this language that there is a hint of triumph wisping through the story, but you just don't see it at first until you step back. And as soon as he, he, he wrote about it, I was like, oh, he's right. And I was like so encouraged, so I'll give it to you as well. What happens to John the Baptist? This faithful servant of God who's out proclaiming God's message, depending on God, right? What, what happens to him, class? He... Okay, he dies, right? The, this messenger, not just any messenger too, this, he is the Elijah who was supposed to come. He's the one who, who dies. It doesn't sound all that great, and yet recognize it and in weaved into the story of his death is the story of 12 more taking his place. King is getting rid of one messenger. 12 more just pop right up. And it just reminded me of the words of Tertullian, the church father who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's why I don't really care what happens in our country. Like I, if it gets hard, that's probably good for us. Because every time the church suffers, it grows. And it's a reminder to me that nothing will stand in the way of the advancement of the kingdom. Herod can try to kill. He can cut off his head. It doesn't matter what unjust actions the people of this world do who reject this coming king. There's no imprisonment. There's no persecution. There's not even death itself that can stand in the way. Because this kingdom is coming, this king will be triumphant, and his name will be spread to the ends of the earth no matter what. Will you bow your heads? Jesus, we are weighed down by the cost of what it means to follow you, as Mark has laid it out here in these contrasting stories. Forgive us Lord, for the flippant way that we view what it means to be a follower of you. It's so easy just in this country that has had a culture of Christianity in the past to wave a banner of your name and think that somehow we're in and yet not be willing to pay the the price. And so we... We come and we ask that you will work in our hearts to show us all the ways in which we are unwilling to pay those prices and to change us. Forgive us for building our kingdom. Forgive us for pursuing our own comforts. Forgive us for for wanting to serve other masters, Lord. Forgive us for, for just proclaiming and not doing, or just doing and not proclaiming. There's so many ways we see that we fail here, and it would be overwhelming, and it is somewhat to my own heart, but I recognize that you are a gracious Savior, forgiving, loving. And you reveal these things to us for the express purpose of changing our hearts. And so we are thankful. And we're thankful even in that little wisp of triumph that that flows through the story. That even though this world may hate you and your kingdom and the messengers who come proclaiming that kingdom, they may kill, they may persecute, they may imprison Nothing will stop it because where they, they stop one, 12 more spring up. Lord, may that be true here in Hampton Roads as we go out. May, may the gospel see spurts of growth here and spurts of growth there. May it double and triple. And we don't care about Cornerstone. We care about your kingdom. And so Father, we come and we ask that you bring your kingdom to bear here on our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our homes and our lives. Thank you for your word. Thank you that nothing can stop that kingdom. We know we serve a victorious king and we place all our hope and faith in him. In Jesus' name, amen.